And this newest version of this mosquito was only just recently tested in Brazil about within a year before it getting approved in, in the Florida Keys. Um, and the concern I have about that line um, is unlike the previous line of mosquito, this line doesn't have any um, peer-reviewed publications that are that are available right now for to be able to be read. Um, and 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 so that's concerning. It's gonna be a really neat behind the scenes. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is so weird. Because something always magical happens. Wait, what? Did you just make that up? Hey, it's Meredith for real, the curious introvert. Listen each week as I talk with someone new. The topics are as ADD as I am, but they'll inspire you to stay curious and grow. Big thanks to our location sponsor, the UWF Historical Trust. Hey there, Meredith For Real fans. It's podcaster Lauren Abrams from 52 Weeks of Hope, where I interview healers, change agents, and leaders about the hardest challenges they've overcome, how they did it, and get their messages of hope, inspiring you to keep going. I empower you to live your best life fully and in the magic, just the way you dream it. You're listening to the fabulous Meredith For Real, the curious introvert. Here's your host, Meredith. Hey, Curiositors. It's me, Meredith. I know that in a lot of countries, it's a little too cold to be talking about mosquitoes right now, but not in every place. And, you know, that's one of the missions of this podcast, to create perspective beyond our backyards, right? So I think you'll like this week's guest because as a biologist, she is in a profession where it would be really easy for her just to exist inside a philosophical bubble. And yet, she founded Editing Nature to help shift scientific culture to include our full humanity. And she's working on a scientific citizen initiative to create more and better relationships with non-scientists. I just love that. I mean, I may be letting my dork flag fly here, but that's all pretty exciting. Um, If you've been here a while, you actually know all about my dork flag. And I thank you for that, truly. And thank you for coming back week after week. My guest this week answers the questions like, do we need mosquitoes? And what's the difference between GMO and gene drive mosquitoes? And what are the ethical concerns around creating and releasing lab altered insects? So if you're new here, uh, these are the sorts of random subjects of curiosity that you can expect. I started this podcast to inspire people to choose curiosity over judgment. And there's no order specifically to listen to episodes. So, you know, just have a look around and hit play on whatever grabs your attention. All right. Enjoy the show. Genetically modified mosquitoes. Hey, now. I can feel you already trying to decide if you love or hate my next guest. Stop that. We don't do that here. My next guest has a bachelor's degree in human anatomy and cell biology, a master's in human nutrition and metabolic studies, and a PhD in cellular, molecular, and medical biosciences. And she's also the kind of person who has favorite trees and a strong sense of social justice. In April of 2021, GMO mosquitoes were released in the Florida Keys in an effort to eliminate a specific breed of disease-carrying mosquito. So why do mosquitoes need modifying? Should we mess with nature? She founded Editing Nature to help navigate the technical, ecological, and ethical complexities of these questions, and to ensure that gene editing technologies are used for the benefit and not the detriment of our planet. 
She likes to say her goal is to build connection, connection between people and nature. Today, she's going to enlighten us on how mosquitoes are more than just annoying and the ethical considerations around the technology in motion for these little bastards. Comprehensive thought leader, pro-environment and pro-human, molecular biologist, Dr. Natalie Kofler. Thank you for coming. Thanks so much for having me. So we all hate mosquitoes. No one's like, oh, I love mosquito. It's, it's my favorite animal. But are they really the world's most deadly animal? Um, I mean, I, I think I always have trouble blaming, um, blaming the mosquito for, for being so deadly. It's really that the mosquitoes carry, you know, different little microorganisms and parasites that end up being quite deadly, um, not the mosquitoes themselves. Um, so, so there's a caveat there, I guess, is, is what I think. And I think the other thing to remember is there's about, you know, over 3,000 different mosquito species, some which are completely harmless, um, only a handful really uh, carry disease. So another important caveat to remember. That's true. What is the uh, mosquito that's the problem that carries the most disease? And how many people are actually suffering from the diseases that they're spreading? So some of the major uh problematic mosquito species would be the Anopheles scambi, and that's the mosquito that carries uh, malaria. Um, and we know that malaria kills nearly 500,000 people a year, um, most of whom are children. Um, and then another real uh, problem is the Anopheles, sorry, the Aedes aegypti uh, mosquito species. This mosquito species carries dengue, yellow fever, um, Zika virus, chikungunya, um, dengue continues to be a really serious disease burden um, and cause of death in the world. Um, and as many of us know, yellow fever was a horribly lethal disease as well. In a lot of places, it's not as common now, of course. But so over, over the centuries, mosquitoes have been doing quite a lot of damage in, in, the, in the diseases that they can spread between humans. And it's so easy now for us to feel separated from the impact that mosquitoes have because you know, we can just go inside and we can sit in a screen and we have a screened area and we have, you know, bug repellent and, and all this sort of, th I don't think I even know anyone who's ever had a mosquito carrying disease. Do you? Uh, yeah, I do know. I do know quite a few people who, um, you know, at least in the, in my line of work who have had malaria in the past, um, or have family members who have even died of malaria. Um, no one in my immediate family, um, and definitely no one living in my immediate neighborhood because I'm up in Toronto right now. Um, we have West Nile disease, which is carried by mosquitoes, um, not as lethal, of course. Um, and we're starting to see Lyme disease creep up here, which is by, you know, carried by ticks, but it's not a huge area for vector borne diseases um, up in the areas of, of cold. That being said, um, I think we'll start to know more and more people that do maybe experience these diseases as, as climates continue to change as well. That's a really good point. Um, I heard that Aedes aegypti was spotted in uh, Mobile, Alabama uh, three years ago, mm -hmm. according to my sources, which is about an hour from where we live in the Florida Panhandle. Um, but I think the point is that, you know, even though we feel removed from the, the dangers of the diseases that mosquitoes carry, it's still impacting pretty much the rest of the world. And now there's this technology that is hopefully going to make a difference for these families so that 
you know, they can have 99 problems, but getting bit by a mosquito isn't <laughs> one of them. <laughs> so um, I wanted to ask you about the, the modified mosquito DNA. It sounds definitely like the origin story to the next Spider-Man movie, <laughs> next Spider-Man villain. Um, what's the most dumbed down explanation that you've got on how this works or how the company creating the technology wants it to work? Yeah, so the mosquitoes that are being tested in the Florida Keys right now are designed by a company called Oxitech, and these are what are called self-limiting mosquitoes. And so the way that this technology works is it's a it's a genetic modification in this mosquito line um, that when these male mosquitoes are raised to adulthood in the lab and they're able to do so because they're in the presence of certain chemicals that they give them in the lab, they then are released into the wild and these males mate with female mosquitoes and they pass on a gene that is lethal to the female mosquito offspring of that mating. So basically no female mosquitoes emerge from those matings. And as you can imagine over time, if you don't have any females, you're not gonna have reproduction and it can cause the mosquito population in that specific area where release occurred to collapse. Um, so this is important you know, in design in certain ways, um, A, because only female mosquitoes bite. So the release of males is not hopefully adding to more higher numbers of, of biting mosquitoes um, in the environment of release. Um, and secondly, it also allows for, um, because sort of the males are still there, they often are still using existing pesticide um, strategies of spraying, et cetera, during release um, so that you don't have a huge boost of mosquito population when those releases are occurring um, as well. Okay, so they're combining forces with the existing mosquito control technology and then this new one. So yeah. not, again, not to sound like the plot of the next end of days movie, but I think that's like what a lot of people think about when they hear this, like, oh Lord, here we go. And you know, here in Florida, we had the introduction of um, love bugs uh, a long time of, ago to get rid of another species of something and it didn't mm. go well. And they're called love bugs because they mate midair and squish themselves on the window <laughs> out of your car and, and they're everywhere. So we, we, the general public don't have a great track record of seeing how, the, you know, this is gone. So um, viruses like the ones carried by mosquitoes, they adapt, they evolve. So what are the chances that the virus could change the behavior of the female mosquitoes, causing them to bite like the males? Um, I think that's highly um, unlikely. So just to be clear, the, only the females bite um, because they bite because um, they use the blood to feed their eggs um, when they're reproducing. So I think it's highly unlikely that there would be evolution where, say, males would begin to bite. Um, but what's a bigger issue is that, um, you know, these are really species-specific um, strategies, right? So as I mentioned, there's all sorts of high, high number of different mosquito species. I, I don't know exact numbers um, within the Florida Keys, but, but dozens probably of different mosquitoes, um, at least a dozen. And, and so one issue, for example, is that 
you might eliminate this Aedes aegypti mosquito species um, from those populations, but that doesn't mean that niche couldn't be filled by a new mosquito species that might carry another disease or evolve to be able to carry and transmit, say, dengue or Zika. Um, so that's an evolutionary um, risk that needs to be very that needs to be studied, um, you know, because it is it is possible that that could something like that could happen, and then you've got a new problem on on your hands, right? Yeah, that's definitely one of the concerns that I've thought of is like nature will somehow find its way to, you know, per- push forward its agenda. But what are your some of your concerns around the ethics of this technology? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's connected to the ethics of the technology, right? The technology is highly complex um, and the ecosystems with which they're being released into are also highly complex um, and have a lot of things that we still don't know about. And so when these decisions are being made or when these new technologies are being tested, they're they're being tested in, um, you know, a situation of, of high uncertainty right? That um, we just can't know for sure how they're going to be working. And then the question becomes, what risks are we willing to take? And what sorts of decisions are we willing to make when we can't know all the answers? Um, And the problem lies within then who gets to make those decisions? Um, Because we know that different people have very different levels of risk tolerance, different people care about different things. Um, And if we have just a very narrow, small group of people making these choices, i.e. technology developers and some of the regulators at the EPA, for example, um, and maybe, you know, some, uh, you know, local, you know, some local representatives, you would hope, is that is that a good enough sort of diverse group of folks to be able to address and accommodate, you know, the many different sort of things we can't know about this and what's important and, you know, reflect what's important to a a community. Um, so that that uncertainty, I think, is probably one of the largest issues and how we're handling it um, with these new technologies like GM mosquitoes that are very complex. Well, and what kind of what you're like hinting at, I think, is that Oxitec is based in the UK and they, to my knowledge, first tested this technology in Brazil. And so there's the issue of certainly informed consent among the people. And then the issue of one people group is making a decision for another people group, as you said. Yeah, I think a concern, um, one concern that I have is that this is actually what's being tested in Florida right now is the second generation of this technology. So they have a line of mosquitoes um, that was their first one. And instead of only being lethal to female offspring, it's lethal to all offspring of those meetings, matings. Um, and that's what's been tested for over a decade. And it first actually was tested in the Cayman Islands, um, where there was quite a lot of concern retrospectively of whether there was actual informed consent um, in those pros- procedures. Um, it's been tested in Brazil now for, for many years. Um, often in collaboration with local researchers and public health departments in Brazil. So it's, you know, it is happening in collaboration. Um, And this newest version of this mosquito was only just recently tested in Brazil about within a year before it getting approved in in the Florida Keys. Um, And the concern I have about that line um, is unlike the previous line of mosquito, this line doesn't have any um, peer-reviewed publications that are that are available right now for to be able to be read, um, and 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 so that's concerning, you know, and especially when we're making these decisions, not only to be able to release in Florida, 
Um, but actually what's happening now is it's under uh, review at the EPA to now actually potentially be released in California um, moving forward and actually extend the release time in Florida. And we still don't have any, any publications or data that's been peer reviewed to actually see how this new line of mosquito is, is working in the wild. That is um, kind of unsettling, yeah. <laughs> uh, to say the least. Um, I'm sure that gives you lots of work um, at Editing Nature to do because, you know, from what I understand, you're, you know, kind of not anti-technology, but you're trying to push for the wisest, most beneficial for everyone use of that technology. Um, I couldn't find anything that said the Center for Disease Control had any sort of oversight with this. And I was thinking, well, don't they track and monitor the spread of infectious diseases? In my mind, mosquitoes are in that bucket. So am I just way off and not understanding how this works? Yeah, I mean, so no, you're not way, you, yes and no. (laughs) (laughs) Great, great, great. I love yes and no answers. Those are my favorite. (laughs) Um, So the decision for approval of these uh, trials with this mosquito um, fell to the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. But the Environmental and Protection Agency does seek out input from other agencies within the U.S. government. And the CDC, I believe, was one of them, as was the FDA um, and others, you know, U.S. Fish and Wildlife, et cetera. So, so they might, they're, they're not um, maybe going to be held accountable in this decision as much, but they definitely were still, um, you know, asked for their input and, and advice. Um, so it's like, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, it might be a classic case of um, the left hand doesn't talk to the right hand, as we often see within um, governing agencies. But that's neither yeah. here nor there. Perhaps a different podcast episode, right? Um, oh, my goodness. Okay. So let's say this technology, it works. And there's no foreseeable side effects or you know bad things that can come of it. What would that mean for the health of the citizens of our planet? Basically, what good could come from this if it works? I mean, if it works, um, especially this Aedes aegypti um, technology that Oxitec has is um, would be a huge could be really important for things like dengue fever, which has a huge disease burden um, in the global south and um, and one that there really isn't a very effective uh, vaccine at this point in time. There's some promising vaccines that might come about, but first, particularly for dengue, there isn't a very effective vaccine. So um, for life years saved and for quality of life, it could be really important. And when you think about all the money that is put into public health and having to deal with these public health crises like dengue, um, that's, that's real. And that needs to really be, you know, applauded if the effort we can find solutions um, that are safe. Hey everyone, just a quick interruption to show gratitude to our sponsors and give you some special deals. The UWF Historical Trust. We shoot the show at the Museum of Commerce and the Pensacola Museum of History. And it's not just an amazing step back into the 18 and 1900s, but it's an event space too. And because they love creative collaborations and have spaces for all party sizes, they're pretty much the perfect venue to make your event stand out. 
So if you need a unique space in downtown Pensacola, take a look at historicpensacola.org. And if you want to tour one of the 12 museums, get your tickets in person so you can show the agent one of my emails and get $2 off an adult ticket. Get emails by texting REAL to 66866. It seems like no one can agree on anything nowadays, but I have found the unifier to unite us all. Mosquitoes suck. Mine were so bad, they were in my car. Have you ever tried to swat a mosquito while driving? Not advised. Insect has been great because they guarantee their work and pollinator care is always top of mind. If you live in the Florida Panhandle or the Gulf Coast of Alabama, give them a call, ensec.net. Now back to the show. Um, for the malaria standpoint, which as I mentioned is a different mosquitoes, it's Anopheles gambi. Um, that's a bit of a different ball game going on right now because we have a different technology in mosquitoes being used for malaria. And that's called a gene drive, which is sort of like a GMO on steroids in my mind, where uh, not only are the mosquitoes genetically altered to either cause, you know, like I said, lethality or sterility, um, but they also have the genetic tools to pass that gene sequence on um, to future generations indefinitely and push it through a population. So you can really quickly change a wild mosquito population and not require these continual releases like we have to do with Oxytech mosquitoes. Um, so from a cost saving standpoint, that's also better because as you can imagine, it's money, money when every time you have to release more of these genetically altered mosquitoes. Um, so that's what we see happening now, um, you know, pushing towards field trial in Western Africa and places like Burkina Faso and Mali. Um, and this is a, a an organization called Target Malaria, which is Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation backed, um, and that and that is that could also have huge implications for human health and and human flourishing um, if it works as hoped um, and doesn't cause uh, you know un, unintended consequences to both human and planetary health. Yeah, and it seems like one of those things you don't know until you're three fourths of the way through it, I'll say, you know, there's no really way to predict, you know, as I said, when I said, what are your concerns? You actually gave me a very long list of questions. You know, so <laughs> It's not like, um, I think from a scientific perspective, it's hard to measure all of this. Um, but it's good to know that this is gene drive is different than GMO mosquito. So GMO mosquito is creating sterile mosquitoes. Gene drive is passing on sterility. Did I get that right? It's, it's, um, it's just a much more complex genetic interaction and, and it is still a genetic modification, right? Like they're modifying these mosquitoes in, in labs. And what they can do is they can override nat natural selection to basically push these desired genetic traits through a population at, um, at hundred percent inheritance. So all of the offspring will get this and they will then be able to pass it on to their offspring and in that way, it can spread really quickly through a population of mosquitoes, um, whereas the Oxytech genetically modified mosquito is going to be a much more localized um, effect. Okay. And I think a question that we all have is, <laughs> do we really need mosquitoes? Do we need them? No, no. Can we just <laughs> kill them all? Well, so this is where we kind of need to, I think, you know, you asked me about some of my ethical concerns. Um, and one of my major ethical concerns is that we, um, at least, you know, in the West, in the West, and, you know, us from like settler colonial ancestry, um, 
don't have a very robust environmental ethic. And when I say environmental ethic, I mean, how do we as humans relate to nature? How do we value nature? Um, how do we make then decisions about nature that allows for the flourishing of both humans and non-humans? Um, and this is where I get really concerned when we're making decisions about, you know, genetic and gen genetically engineering wild species is, you know, if we make these decisions from the idea that like humans are separate from nature, we know best, we can control nature, we're absolutely screwed. Like it is, there is no way we're going to make these choices well. Um, and so I think that this is again, where we might need to be really thinking about what are, you know, reflecting on our ethics and, and maybe cultivating new ethics if we're going to be able to support good decision-making um, from a place of humility, from a place that recognizes the deep interconnectedness between humans and non-humans um, and really, and reveres the complexity of our ecosystems um, and, and what's required to make good choices within them. That gives me goosebumps. I, I, cause I don't know how we can do that. <laughs> mm -hmm. I don't, I, I, you know, when you talk about, eliminating these viruses that are carried by mosquitoes, I think about, oh, how wonderful that would be, especially for the children in the countries most impacted by these diseases, that they can go to school and they could, you know, what if they are the next person to think about some wonderful invention and they can, you know, bring it as a gift to the rest of the world, but they can't if they are worried about mosquitoes and certainly not if they're sick and dying from mosquitoes. Right. So in that right. sense, it definitely would um, further humanity. But the question is, how do we further an already, a humanity already disconnected from nature while editing nature? <laughs> <laughs> well, know? I think this goes back to the and both um, mentality, right? So I feel like so much of so many of these decisions are always about like humans versus nature. Um, you know, we have to eliminate the mosquito to save humans. Um, are there alternatives? You know, one potential is that you modify the mosquitoes so they can't carry the disease, and and in essence, almost inoculate the mosquitoes so they're not carrying the disease, so that our ecosystems can continue to kind of continue to act in the ways that they need to while still protecting human life. Like that's where different kinds of environmental ethics can actually inform different kind of solutions to these these really serious problems. I like that, and I like that the multi, you know, angled approach. Um, my concern is one of them <laughs> is that like okay, we get into this, you know, experiment, because that's essentially what it is. Mm -hmm. And then, oh, we, we discover we being the people who are doing the thing, not we the public. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. Let's clarify yeah, um, what good. we means. Yeah. Um, so we the people doing the thing discover that it is harmful in, you know, A, B and C ways. But because of money, ego, greed, whatever, they're not going to pull back and be like, oh, we're wrong because of lawsuits, because of, you know, how, how it looks and maybe how it would affect their shareholders. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I think this is where um, the reality of the world gets really scary. Right. And I think it's going to depend on where, you know, who's developing these technologies. I think there's a big difference between a for-profit company like Oxitech developing these versus a nonprofit like Target Malaria, just in what they're, you know, not that nonprofits can also, uh, there can be issues and, I, and I've seen that as well, but the need for different levels of transparency, for example, 
the need for more precaution um, to take things at a different pace that isn't necessarily always, um, you know, dictated by profit and, and power in the same way. Um, so I think we need to be, that's something to be watching. I think, again, it's not as scary as it might seem because there has been some considerable transparency as compared to technologies in the past um, and how these sorts of mosquito uh, strategies are being designed. Um, but I think the other thing for me, and maybe this is like to clarify my position is, you know, again, like I'm really in the middle here in that I, I really can see so much benefit to these technologies, to solving these really challenging issues that up until now are not, you know, they're not getting solved. Um, and then at the same time, I just have a pretty strong sense of wariness that the decision-making processes we have in place our regulatory systems, our systems for engaging local community members, et cetera, are so inadequate to meet the complexity of these technologies. And so really, I think my biggest issue is how the decisions are being made, not the technologies themselves. I mean, yes, we can do a lot better in how we design technologies to be more inclusive, et cetera. And I'm not, that's for another conversation. <laughs> but when it comes to like what situation we are now with these mosquitoes, what we have at the regulatory level to make these decisions is so like it already was inadequate. And these mosquitoes are just going to like blow it apart at the seams. Like they cannot do make these decisions appropriately. And I think that's something that, you know, as citizens, we can be involved in. We can require different kinds of systems, you know, within our governments to make these choices. Um, and maybe that's where we need to be putting our efforts um, as well. Um, yeah, I know we I know we're running out of time, but I know mm -hmm. that's something that my listeners would love some actionable thing that they can, <laughs> <laughs> instead of leaving feeling like, well, we're all going to die, um, that they can feel like, okay, let's move forward with caution. I can be involved. I have a voice. Is that the purpose of your, um, your foundation editing nature, or do you suggest another path for action? No, so please, yeah, check out our website at www.editingnature.org. Um, we're very much about how do we create different spaces for decision-making um, and understanding the complexity and the diversity of inputs that would need to be present to make these choices well. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, you have elected officials that can have clout within your regulatory systems, whether it's at the state level or the, or the federal level, and even at the local level. So for example, in the Florida Keys, their mosquito control board, um, was charged with making the final decision about whether this release should occur or not. And they were elected officials. Um, you know, so there are, there are ways to have say in these systems, even though it can seem like it's hard to at times. Um, so I think that that's, that's also a really important thing to investigate. Um, and if you go to any nature, you can find more information about those pr procedures, um, as well. Yes. I'll be linking those. I do an email at the, um, end of the week that an episode airs. And so at the end of the week, our episode airs, I'll put all of that in that email. Um, so that way it can just be easy for people to find and bookmark and maybe there's a newsletter that they can get connected with. And if you're listening or watching this and you're not on that email list and you want to be, all you have to do, if you're in the U.S., text REAL to 66866. And if you're elsewhere, you can just go to my website, MerithForReal.com and get on the email list there. You had one other thing that you wanted to share with us before we sign out. It was your scientific citizenship initiative at Harvard. Can you share about that? Oh, yeah. Well, this actually gets to the um, technology design kind of stuff, right? Because one thing I recognize um, as being someone who was in the sciences, hardcore sciences for a long time, 
um, you know, is that we don't necessarily have scientific culture that promotes sort of people to bring their full humanity into their work um, and that promotes a really inclusive scientific enterprise. And so really thinking about how do we start shifting scientific culture to create more and better, um, you know, relationships with non-scientists and other communities and also think about, you know, hopefully be able to design technologies that, that really benefit and serve everyone um, and really are more aligned with society. So we have an organization at Harvard called the Scientific Citizenship Initiative that we're just building now um, that I also invite you to check out um, to think about how we're maybe approaching more upstream impacts of, of some of this technology. I love that. I, that's the, my whole... Um my whole desire for the show is to build connections and to broaden perspective at the same time. So that's not up yet. How can people keep an eye out for that? How can they connect with that initiative? So we have a website up now. It's undergoing serious rebranding right now. <laughs> okay. that was something when I joined, I was like, guys, let's like make this really reflect us a little bit better. Um, but the, the existing site's up and a new site will be launching hopefully kind of uh, late winter, early spring. Um, and we have a mailing list there to, to join. Um, and we offer a bunch of different really interesting online learning experiences and different sort of curriculum that we're, we're happy to be partnering with new organizations and sort of getting this curriculum out to a broader group of, of learners. That's really, really exciting. I'm, I'm so excited and so glad that we met. Thank you so much for sharing. Is there anything, other thoughts you want to leave with the audience before we end? Uh, no, just um, really grateful to be here. Thank you for inviting me. And um, yeah, thank you for grappling with these confusing and complicated topics. But it's exactly what I think we need to be doing right now um, together. Yes. And thank you for bringing them into like everyday language. That's <laughs> such a blessing. All right. Well, thank you again. Okay. Take care. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast and want to help others find it, leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And if you liked this episode, you'll also like the one on how the Air Force is using robotic security dogs. It's episode 81. Stay tuned next week when a fellow podcaster and I talk about interviews that changed our lives. Talk to you then.